episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Zephyr CMS. It's a modern cloud-based CMS system that's licensed only to agencies. You can find them at zephyrcms.com. More about this later in the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance. My guest today is Mike Robbins. He is an expert in emotional intelligence, leadership, teamwork, and company culture. He's the author of five books, including Bring Your Whole Self to Work, and We're All in This Together, Creating a Team Culture of High Performance Trust and Belonging. And just a little side note. He also did a little gig for the Kansas City Royals as a minor league player uh, in their system before an arm injury took him pretty much off that journey. And why is that important? Because listeners know that the Kansas City Royals are my home team. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Always nice to meet a Royals fan. Don't meet a lot of those out here in California where I live, but uh, it's good. Well, especially after we had that uh, that run in with the uh, the Giants, of course, as well. Yeah. Well, you know, the one thing, though, about that that was amazing, I mean, the Giants won their third title in, in five years at that time, beat the Royals. It was sad for the Royal fans. But then the Royals came back the very next year after losing in Game 7 of the World Series and won the title the following year, which is an extraordinary testament to a great team, particularly given that they didn't have the best talent on paper. So I use them often as an example of uh, of grit and and success for teams. Yeah, and since we went down this rabbit hole already, I mean, I think it's actually I think it's actually instructional. I, you know, a lot of a lot of times people talk about team chemistry and those kinds of things in sports teams, and you know, when it's all about the money and it's all about like where are you going to play next year because you get a better deal. Um, I think a lot of people kind of say, yeah, that team chemistry stuff is 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 you know maybe it wins you a game or two, but it's kind of overrated. Would you say that? That, um, that 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 was probably an example of where perhaps team chemistry. Obviously, there's lots of luck, lots of other things, but would you say there's an example where team chemistry played a role? I think so. I mean, look, you know, I played baseball for 18 of the first 25 years of my life, right? I mean, I I played. I had a chance to play in college at Stanford. I got a chance to play with the Kansas City Royals in the minor leagues. I got injured. I was a pitcher, hurt my arm, but I saw over the course of my career, John, so many times when team chemistry played a huge role. And if you look at it, if, again, people listening, my apologies, John and I are already down this rabbit hole of baseball, even if you're not a baseball fan. But if you just think about it, the San Francisco Giants, who is one of our local teams here, they won three World Series titles in five years. They've actually been a client of mine for the last decade. They shouldn't have won any of those titles. I mean, maybe the Royals were the only team where on paper, both of those teams really shouldn't have been in the World Series, but they got hot and they got there and the Giants happened to win in seven games. The Royals came back the next year with a really young team. They'd had some success in the postseason the year before, but again, they weren't anywhere close to the best team on paper in baseball. The team that won the World Series last year in 2019, the Washington Nationals, they lost 69 games in the regular season, another five games in the postseason. They lost 41% of their games until they won game seven of the World Series on the road against the Astros. They weren't supposed to win. So again, in a sport like baseball, that is not like football or basketball where everyone's sort of running around with the ball at the same time, you would think it's very individualistic. You've got a great pitcher. You've got a great home run hitter. You can win. Chemistry matters a ton, not just in baseball, not just in other sports, but in business. And that's actually what I've been obsessed with and focused on in my business for the last two decades. So there are a lot of books on this idea of culture. It seems like it's become a pretty big category lately. So so what does we're all in this together kind of bring that, that that you believe is is kind of a different idea or different approach to this idea of team and culture? 
Well, I mean, some of it is born out of, you know, again, my experience as an athlete. And again, not that there's not other athletes that have gone out and written books or done work like this on culture. But what I've learned and what I've seen, and it kind of boils down to a really simple phenomenon that if you can create an environment, when I, I saw this in baseball, I see this now with some of the teams that I work with. And it's it sounds simple on the surface. It sounds almost cliched, but it's really hard to do where people are willing to sacrifice to some degree individually for the greater good, meaning there's something bigger going on. And that the paradox of it, though, is this, John. And again, I learned this many years ago as an athlete. If you're on a winning team, it actually benefits you personally. So back to the you were talking about pro sports. We say, oh, they're just making money. That like when I talk to athletes, I say, look, it's in your best interest for the team to win the championship. Why? Because you're more valuable next season. People will sign you to a better contract if you're a mediocre player on a championship team than a mediocre player on a mediocre team. And that's true in business too. You work for, you know, Google. You work for, um, you know, I don't know, McKinsey. You work for some company that the brand is really strong. The company's really strong. The company's doing well. You know, Zoom right now, which stock is going way up, whatever, you become more valuable, like, oh, you work for Netflix or whatever it is. Whether you are actually more valuable or not, you become more valuable. Again, you know this as a marketer from a marketing standpoint, you're now more marketable, if you will. And so the difference that I see in in my work or what I focus on, not that it's necessarily unique, but it's really understanding that creating a strong culture is not just a nice to have, it's a need to have. And if you don't have it, it makes it difficult, if not impossible, to succeed. And if you do have it, it's not a guarantee that you're going to succeed, but you put yourself in the game. So we are recording this in the end of March of 2020. And if the listeners, uh, if you're listening to this right now, you know what's going on. But you might look back and know what's going on uh, from from the health challenge. Uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are being laid off. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how is this notion of we're all in this together <laughs> being tested? being tested in sort of that that context. Well, well, it's interesting because on the one hand, when we're in a situation like we are right now, and who knows, again, if people are listening to this many months later, many years later, they'll know better than you and I know, John, in this moment, how this thing all played out, right? But what we do know when we get into this situation and whenever we've been in an economic downturn, and this one came about because of a health crisis, because of a pandemic, the economy for the most part in most sectors was pretty strong and then fell off a cliff because the economy basically shut down. So this is unprecedented. We don't know how this is going to play out and what this ultimately means. There is a tendency to go into this everyone for themselves mentality, right? I got to take care of me and mine and cover my you know what and hope that I can keep my job or for many of us, myself included, maybe like you and lots of people listening who have our own businesses, how are we going to survive through this? And while that's a very normal, natural, you think of Maslow's hierarchy, it goes right down to sort of physiological needs and then safety needs. Belonging is the third part on the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy. That's really where teamwork and community and collaboration kind of come in. However, what I'm finding fascinating about this moment in time is that now more than ever, globally, we literally are all in the same macro circumstance, even though it's impacting us in a very specific and personal way. Again, if someone got sick or they're in the hospital or they're dealing with the coronavirus versus someone lost their job versus someone has a business versus someone is in an industry or a job where they're really safe. Yes, we all have very different circumstances, but there's something collective that's going on that actually reminds us in some ways of the vulnerability of life and of business that we can't control 
the outcome. And even though it's a negative circumstance and a real challenge that I don't mean to minimize, one of the things that great teams do is they have a way and great communities have a way of coming together around shared experience, around shared goals, even around shared challenge. Yeah. Right. And that's something that we can lean on at this time to some degree. You know, it's interesting as I listen to you describe that. I, I think um, companies that that have this great culture, um, I think of actually, and maybe it's just instinctively, or maybe you hit on it is this idea that collectively we're all in this together. Um, I think they're actually, I think they're many, in many cases, they're reaching out and, and viewing, and maybe they've always viewed their customers as part of the world that's together. So it's not just our employees, but it's actually our customers who are suffering from this, whether it's B2B or B2C businesses, our customers are, are experiencing this same thing and they're in this with us too, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things in a very practical, um, stand, from a very practical standpoint for my own company, my business, and there's five of us on our team and then we have some other folks that contract and do different things. I mean, look, having real honest conversations with the team and saying, look, I don't know exactly where this is going. I don't know what it's going to look like in a few months. And if, you know, down the road, we're going to do everything we possibly can to keep this business going, to keep this business strong, but I can't guarantee anything. And what, what I do know, and one of our core values as a company, as a team is to be of service. And so how can we be of service to the people we do business with? And so reaching out to our customers, our clients, the people that, you know, hire us and bring me and the team in to do work first and foremost, just to check in and see how they're doing secondarily then to see, is there some way that we can pivot some of what we do and offer it to them in a way that could be beneficial, which also then can continue to generate some revenue for us so we can keep the doors open, if you will. But I think leading from a genuine place of how can I serve, and to your point, businesses big and small, thinking of their customers or their clients as part of the larger community. Because the truth is, again, it is one thing about going through a difficult time or a tragedy that we do all share to some degree in the pain of it. Again, some of us are impacted more directly than others, but it's a shared experience. And I can't help but um, but believe that people are actually um, experiencing or companies are actually demonstrating, you know, those words that are on like the wall <laughs> in the lobby. They're, they're either real or they're not right now, I think. And, and I think, but I do also think that there might, this might be an opportunity for people to actually reexamine who they are and reexamine their culture. And so I wonder if we could spend the rest of the show, uh, you, you've kind of broken your your approach or your methodology down into four pillars. Um, and I wonder if we could kind of spend some time on on those, particularly for those companies that are thinking, well, maybe we've got this great culture, but it's we haven't built it intentionally. Um, and then obviously those companies are thinking, you know what, this needs to be a focus. You know, people like working here, but we haven't made this a focus. Maybe we could, uh, and, and again, you know, Listeners, buy the book. We're all in this together. You'll get the full plan. But, uh, but Mike, maybe you could go with uh, pillar one, create psychological safety. Yeah. So psychological safety is basically group trust. It means the group is safe enough for people to take risks, speak up, make mistakes, try new things. It's based on the research of a professor at Harvard Business School named Amy Edmondson. And Google did a study a few years back, John, where they spent three years studying what are the conditions necessary to create high performance for teams. And after three years of studying and crunching a ton of data and looking at this from every different angle, they came back with some findings. And the number one, by far the most important element that they found that was necessary for teams to have if they were going to perform at a high level was this psychological safety. And so one of the things you can think about for people listening, if you're in a leadership position of any kind on a team, big or small, the best way to create more psychological safety 
is to operate with authenticity and even vulnerability, meaning that you exhibit and exemplify it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to take a risk. It's okay to do something different, like own up when you screw something up, admit when you don't know something or need some help. I mean, these little things actually go a long way because again, John, if you're my boss and I see you say, hey, Mike, I'm sorry, I screwed this thing up. Or you know what? I don't know how to do this or I'm not very good at this or I really need your help. I go, oh, well, if John is willing to do that, then he's modeling that it's okay for me to do that. And then we can operate that way. You know, today content is everything. So our websites are really content management systems, but they've got to work like one. Check out Zephyr. It is a modern cloud-based CMS system that's licensed only to agencies. It's really easy to use. It's very fast. It uh, won't mess with your SEO. I mean, it really reduces the time and effort to, to launch uh, your client's websites. Beautiful themes, just really fast, profitable way to go. They include an agency services to really kind of make a, them your plug-and-play dev shop. Check out Zephyr.com. That is Z-E-P-H-Y-R-C-M-S.com. And I think that's a really tough one for a lot of leaders because I think a lot of leaders have been trained to think I have to have all the answers. People come to me because I'm so smart and because I built this thing, or I mean, at least that's may or may not be true, but at least that's kind of like in the back of my mind. I, if I, if I show them, I don't know the answers, you know, then they're not going to look up to me. And so I, obviously we know that belief's not uh, accurate, but how do people get over that one? It's tough. I mean, but I think part of it is to realize if you're a great leader, even if you have a really small business, just a couple of people. Even if, and if it's much bigger, can we hire people who are better than us, who are smarter than us, who have skills that we don't have? That takes some. Well, but, but that's, that's really scary. Now, now you really made me freak out. Well, yeah. I mean, but at some <laughs> level, like I have people on my team who are so much better than me at things and I'm so grateful. And there are moments I'll even say, you know what? I'm feeling a little insecure at this moment because I think you're so much better than me. Like my little ego is having a problem, but just to be able to voice that. And usually they'll laugh and look at me like I'm a little crazy, but they're now used to hearing that from me. And it's one of the things like you want, I mean, again, think of a sports team. It's like, you want to have the best player at every position you possibly can. If you feel like you have to be the best player at every position, you're probably going to either hire people who aren't as good as they could be and, or you're going to get in their way and not empower them to really be as great as they can be. You'll constantly miss the cutoff, man. I'm certain. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and the, the second pillar is about inclusion and belonging, which really is Look, again, I was talking about Maslow's hierarchy earlier, right? Physiological needs, safety needs. Third level is belonging. It's not simply just, hey, let's create an inclusive environment, which is important, by the way. Let's make sure people feel like it's we need that as human beings to know that we belong. So and every one of us, irrespective of our background, our identity, how we look, some of us have had much more experience in life feeling like we didn't belong for a variety of different reasons. But as a leader, if you think about Am I doing and saying everything I possibly can? And is our culture set up so that people feel not only that they're included here, but that they belong, that they're part of something, right? That it's not simply just a paycheck. Again, and that can be our customers. That can be the people we do business with. But are we creating something that's strong enough, that's valuable enough, that's inspiring enough that people feel a sense of ownership and belonging? So my third one, the, the, your third one, embrace sweaty palmed conversations on, on top of being evocative you know i think that that's all, also one that uh again trips a lot of people up you know we 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 don't want to have that conversation we ignore it until the problem was so big that you know it just turns into you're fired 
Right. I mean, that came from a conversation with a mentor of mine years ago. He said to me, Mike, you know, it stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people. I said, what's that? He said, it's probably a 10 minute sweaty palm conversation you're too afraid to have. And to your point, they're scary, right? If I, you and I have a conflict, I don't want to bring it up because it might get worse or you might get mad at me, or maybe I want to give you some feedback or whatever, talking about an elephant in the room or a touchy subject. So we avoid those things. And then usually they end up being way worse, right? I remember talking to someone years ago who said his philosophy as a leader was bad news doesn't age well. So he wanted to say the bad news as soon as possible because it wasn't going to get better if he put it off. And so part of that is actually, they're never easy, they're never fun, but a willingness to have those conversations sooner rather than later. Know that sometimes they might be messy, but if you can create a culture where it's conducive and people feel like it's okay for us to engage like that, we're going to do it respectfully. We're going to work our way through it. It may not always be pretty. It may not always work out exactly right, but we're not going to have conversations. The meeting after the meeting is usually much more problematic than talking about it in the room. Care about and challenge each other. So, you know, these fit nice, these pillars fit nicely together because it's almost like a toolbox of, of um, I think I started your uh, your introduction as an expert in emotional intelligence. This is kind of the emotional intelligence <laughs> toolbox, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had on my own podcast that I have, um, I, I interviewed my coach from Stanford, Dean Stotts, last fall. And Johnny said this really simple but profound thing. He said, you know, he coached at Stanford for 37 years, had a ton of success. He and I have stayed friends. He's been a mentor, just a, a wonderful human being, great father, great husband. But he said, Mike, my philosophy on coaching for all those years was this. He said, I always believed I had to love you hard so I could push you hard. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I knew if whether it was you and all your teammates, all the guys you played with, the guys that came before you, the guys that came after, if you knew that I cared about you, if I loved you, if I had your back, then you would allow me to push you and challenge you. You may not have always liked it, but I had permission. But if I didn't do the work on the front end to really let you know that I cared about you, then I wasn't given the permission to push you and you weren't going to succeed individually and collectively. And when he said that, I said, you know, Dean, that to me is what makes a great leader. That's what makes a great team. When you can create that kind of environment where people feel valued and cared about, not just for their skills or their performance, but for them as a human being, then you're more open to being pushed, being challenged, given feedback. And that's interesting because I think there's a lot of parallels. It's almost like good parenting. I mean, because when you, when you talk about care about, that doesn't mean I'm your pal. Right. I mean, that, that that just means I, you know, I do care about you succeeding and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what I can with the tools I have to allow you to succeed. But I, I think a lot of I think a lot of times people get tripped up on that because they think it's like, yeah, the you know, like I'm the boss, you know, so, uh, you know, I can't be pals with them. But I, I think we're not saying that at all. No. And I think, look, I mean, you're right. Then the parenting example is a good one in that we're not necessarily friends with our kids, especially at certain ages. Like you got to have some tough love, have some real clear boundaries, give some real feedback. I think the same could be true. Look, we're all adults, so it's different. And the dynamic between a boss and an employee is different than a parent and a child. But similarly, it's like you can have really strong personal relationships with people and still understand the the role that you play as the boss, as the manager, as the leader. But again, if people don't know that you that they're cared about, they're not going to listen to your feedback, even if you are the boss, even if you have the most brilliant feedback in the world to give me, I'm not listening until I know you actually care about me first. 
And, and I think some of that caring about you is in the three pillars. I mean, it's, it's, this is a safe place. I'm going to have your back. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to include you. Uh, you know, I'm going to have the tough conversation with you. That's really how you show that you care about somebody. Absolutely. Look, and I think whether it's right now when we're dealing with this challenge we were talking about earlier or just in general, I'm a big believer in the saying, you know, circumstances don't define us. They reveal us. So we learn a lot about each other going through things together. And sometimes those sweaty palm conversations or those challenges, those bumps in the road that seem like they're derailing us, they're actually showing the people around us who we really are. And I'll trust someone. I'll trust John, you more. If we work together, we have a conflict, we have a problem, we work through it. I go, oh, I saw some of his true colors. I see how he handles stress and pressure and challenge. We work through that. Now our relationship's stronger and we're part of a team where we know we can bump up against each other, but do it in service of us being successful that makes a really strong team. Yeah, I think most people are more more likely to at least uh, respect somebody who maybe has a different point of view of ours, but they're consistent, they're thorough, you know, they they, they walk the talk. Um, you know, I think a lot of times, even if we don't agree with them, that kind of person who says, here's who I am, here's what I believe is, is probably more, uh, you know, more trustworthy in some ways than somebody that, that kind of tells us what we want to hear. Absolutely, absolutely. So, We've gone over the pillars and now I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to tell us like, what? how do we do all this? You know, I mean, what, what are, what are some of your ideas, tools, techniques for, you know, how somebody does it? Cause I, cause obviously this is, some people have some of these, uh, some of these gifts, uh, intuitively they were taught them. A lot of people have a lot of work to do. So, you know, how does somebody kind of go to work on themselves to become this more, uh, rounded, uh, leader? I think the first thing is we got to, we, we need some feedback. We all need feedback. So if having a coach, having a mentor, having someone, you know, even the books that I write, the design of it is really to put it up in your face a little bit. So you take some inventory, where do I, or where do we need to do some work? The second thing is to make a commitment to this. Again, it's like health and well being. It's not like, Hey, I went to a, you know, weekend retreat and worked out and now I'm in shape and I'm good for the forever. No, you got to keep doing it. Right. And then the third thing related to that is have practices, individual practices and team practice. Again, think about sports. It's like rituals, practice, training all the time so that you're ready for the game. You're not going to be a high-performing team just by doing your work. You have to have to actually commit to and invest in being a high-performing team and nurturing the team. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I will second that hundred percent. I've got like these little cheat cheat sheets that I keep in my uh, daily, daily planner that are like questions and values that, you know, and I, I, look at them, you know, when I go into a meeting and I say, Oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta remember to use these. So, um, I, I do absolutely, uh, agree with that, that it's something you've got to, you've got to be intentional about, uh, and mindful about, um, and that, you know, gosh darn it, it takes work. That's what it really comes yeah, down to. It does. It does. <laughs> Mike, where can people find out uh, more about, uh, we're all in this together and, uh, the work that you do with teams? Yeah. The best place to do it is at our website. We actually set up a special page about the book. It's at Mike dash Robbins forward slash together. And that's got all the info about me and about the book and also some special bonuses that folks get when they order the book. Good. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to stop by the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast and hopefully we'll run into you soon out there in the ballpark somewhere. Thanks for having me. 